morning, guys. Please have a seat. Great to see you. Um, I want to take this moment to acknowledge and apologize for our screen this morning. Uh, it's just a little off, as you obviously notice. And uh, but I'm I'm saying this because too, this is to your advantage because you get to see uh, a little bit of a mountain behind me this morning. So you get more beauty than just this theater holds for you, and I'm not much to look at either. So you get a little bit of a mountain, which helps. Uh, but more than anything, um, I just want to uh, say thank you to Chris Erickson, uh, who runs our visuals, and people week after week who serve you guys, and you don't even know they're up there doing this. They show up early before you, and they run through all this stuff so that they can serve us well as a church. And so, Chris, honestly, man, I just want to say thank you. I know that you do a lot that we never see, and so, seriously, yeah. Um, but guys, if you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we are this morning. Uh, we've been, since last fall, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've slowed down here a bit in chapter 7, and we've seen how God has a vision for um, sex, sexual intimacy. Uh, last week, we looked at how God has a vision for marriage uh, and how uh, that relates to divorce and, and different things and living as we are called when we come to faith in Christ. And today, uh, we get to see God's vision for singleness. And so I'm going to read this. Um, verses 7 and 8 um, are key uh, verses that we need to first look at. And because throughout chapter 7, there is just a back and forth conversation, it seems, of Paul uh, and things that he is saying about these different issues and so it's not this clean, cut, and dry, just verse after verse sort of exposition that many of us are used to when we get into the letters. But I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then I'm going to read 25 on down to the end. And so if you would, read along with me here in 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul talking. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, verse 25, concerning the betrothed, the single, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Davey talked about this last week. This isn't Paul saying, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice per se. He's saying, uh, that when he says, not my command from the Lord, but what I'm saying, he's talking about Jesus didn't specifically talk about this thing. doesn't mean there's not the same sort of God-given authority to the scripture. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though it had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin." But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Lord Jesus, I do ask that in this moment today, uh, you would speak so powerfully to us. Father God, may we um, approach you and seek your face um, as who you've revealed yourself to be, our Father. 
God, may we really have a, a deep belief uh, as we are in this time together that we are your sons and daughters, God. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would guide us and teach us and have your will in our lives. Lord, I pray that more than anything, uh, you would cause our hearts to behold your glory and your beauty, Lord Jesus. That we wouldn't just leave here with things we feel like we should do or ought to do, but things that we really want to do because you're worthy of our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would shape us into the people you want us to be. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this is a uh, complex topic to address this morning, uh, singleness. Um, and I recognize that I'm not single, okay? So I'm not sitting here saying, hey, just do what I do, all right? But um, this is a topic that has become very near and very dear to my heart. Uh, one, because I'm a pastor of this church, and like 70% of you are single. So, and I love you guys. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, but uh, to be very real with you, uh, there are people that I'm just really close to uh, who are single, and they aren't like, yeah, I'm 18 and single and, you know, really just wish I was married right now. You know, the, and, you know like they haven't, it's not like they've suffered through singleness for a long time. But people who uh, are, are much further along in life and they're still single and they don't want to be. And so uh, my heart breaks for those people. Um, I've, I've cried many tears on their behalf. And so uh, my hope this morning is uh, to bring hope, uh, to bring comfort, a vision for all of us as a church so if you're not single and you're married, this isn't time for you to check out. Uh, this is time for you to press in. This involves all of us. But more than anything, I want to put in front of us Jesus and his worth for us and uh, for us to cherish him and, and follow him as worthy of our lives. I want us to see and savor him. Uh, Jesus himself talked about being single, and this will be on the screen in Matthew 19, uh, he said to his disciples, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus uses the word eunuchs here. And the context of what he means when he says this is really the word celibates or single or not married. And he says, some have been celibate from birth, meaning not by choice, okay? And what we have in mind here, what Jesus has in mind here, I think, is those who from birth will not pursue a, a sexual relationship with somebody else, okay? Either because of a defect, uh, maybe they're asexual, um, or maybe even they're same-sex attracted, and therefore they desire to stay faithful to Jesus, and so they're saying, I'm choosing a life of celibacy, okay? Um, uh, the second, though, is by and large probably the largest group. And uh, people that you would think of when you think of singles. And um, th these people are, that Jesus is talking about are people who are divorcees, they're, they're widowed. Uh, there are those who would just say, I'm waiting. You know, so they're hopeful to have a spouse someday. They look forward to being married. But just in this space, in the here and now, right now, they're waiting. And so even that category of people who are single, it's complicated. Because there's some of you right now who maybe are single and you just got out of a relationship and you're like, yes, I'm free. This is amazing. You know, it was terrible, you know. Um, or it was too expensive or whatever, you know. And, uh, and then there's some of you, though, that uh, just got out of a relationship and it really hurt because you didn't want to get out of it. And you're still really wounded by that. It's really painful. Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a broad spectrum here. And there's some of you, too, who are single by choice. You're like, I'm just pursuing my career, whatever it is right now. This is a broad category of people. But then there's this last category that Jesus gives here uh, where, where people get a sense from the Spirit of God that they want to give their life totally to the kingdom of God and don't want to be distracted with marriage. So they literally give themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus. And whether they live domestically or go to an unengaged people group, they're like, I'm gonna, I, I feel called to be celibate for the sake of Christ and the sake of his gospel. So regardless of where you're at this morning, the Bible is clear to us, and that's what I want us to see. It's the title of the sermon, that singleness is a gift from God. But the Bible talks about singleness in this way. It's not some sort of second-class status. It's, it's rather a gift that God gives to people. And so here in, in 1 Corinthians 7, this is my hope that as a faith family, we would discover this vision and embrace it and take practical steps forward to live it out. So here's the things that should be on the screen. I, I want us to see that singleness is a gift, the advantages of being single, the basis for this worldview. All this is here in 1 Corinthians 7. It's amazing. 
And then finally, I want to give some practical advice uh, moving forward. I, th- I think it's going to be necessary to do that. So the first thing we see here is the gift of singleness. Remember what Paul says in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, each having his own gift from God, one of one kind and one from another. He says in verse 8, it is good for them to remain single as I am. The gift he's talking about is his singleness because he just got done talking about married people. And now he's saying they have a gift of marriage. I have the gift of singleness. So just think about the way this is being worded to you. What is a gift? Well, a gift is, is not something that you're owed. Then it wouldn't be a gift, right? It'd be a right. So a gift is something that you graciously give or you gratefully receive, and it becomes your possession. That's, that's what a gift is. So what's a gift here? The gift is singleness. It's not being married. Um, have you ever uh, received a gift from somebody, and they were like, man, I just want to give this to you, and you were like, that, thank you. You have to put on a face to say thank you, but ultimately you're like, great, now I have an errand or something, you know? Like, uh, maybe you got a gift from your grandma once, like a sweater at Christmas. You're like, sweet, grandma, can I have the receipt? Now I got to go run an errand, return this for something I really want, right? She gives it to you as a gift, but you're like, that's not really a gift in my eyes, right? Or uh, this happens a lot to us, which is, I'm so grateful for it. People often give us baby clothes, just baby clothes and baby clothes, and we're finally moving out of that season. We give this to other people now. But so many times people give us bags of baby clothes, and sometimes I'm like, great, I'll run to Goodwill for you. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much, you know? Um, but I, I, it's a gift. They're trying to be generous, but at the same time, I'm like, sweet, I have an errand, you know? So just because something's a gift uh, doesn't mean it feels like a gift to us, now does it? Right? Sometimes we get a gift that we don't want, and it's really not perceived as a gift. Instead, we don't process it as a gift. We process it as grief, as like a burden, And for many of us, that's how we view singleness. We hear gift, and we're like, great, thanks. Awesome. That's how we process singleness. It's not a gift. It's it's grief. It's a terrible gift, and we hope that we only have to hold on to it for a little while, and then we can, like, you know, return it to the store or give it to some other sad soul, you know, that kind of idea. But when you read the Bible, when you read this chapter, singleness is seen in the Christian worldview as a very viable gift. Maybe it's not the gift you had on your wish list since you were a child, but it's a gift nonetheless, and it's a good grace gift from God. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, a really important theologian of our age, I think he's at Duke, I think, uh, argues that Christianity was the very first religion to hold up single adulthood as a viable way of life. So back, especially when this was being written, uh, this society did not think this way at all. It was very countercultural. Because if you didn't have a family, if you didn't have kids, you didn't have any honor in society. Um, All cultures back in this day in the first century church church viewed single people as a drag on society. You believe that? If you don't believe me, Rodney uh, Rodney Stark, it should be on the screen, he's a social historian. He, He wrote this about his studies in the first century. Pagan widows faced great social pressures to remarry. Caesar Augustus even had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. Is there a drag on society? Uh, in the first century, this would be another quote on the screen, uh, Rabbi Eleazar said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. Uh, the Talmud, which is Jewish writing, says, uh, the man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. So some of you, you need to repent, right? <laughs> um, doesn't say ladies, though, so you're fine. But um, anyways, Do you, I mean, this is sad, right? Can we agree this is sad? Single people are a drag, but in contrast among Christians, widowhood was highly respected. You see it talked a lot about in the New Testament. The church stood ready to sustain widows, allowing them a choice whether or not they wanted to remarry, and single widows were active in caregiving and good deeds, as opposed to societies which idolized family as the only means of giving a person significance. So singleness, according to Christianity, you guys, is not plan B. It's a viable plan A for life. It is. And as a result, this revolutionary attitude, the early church, they did not pressure people to marry, but they saw singleness as a gift from God for the cause of Christ. I'm just curious, why do you think this happened? Why was it that Christianity was was sort of this first movement that actually saw singleness as a plan A? Because the founder of our faith was single. The person we're following and we're devoted to and we're after in life and his mission and his purpose, 
He was single, and yet as a single man, he was a perfect human being. He wasn't a drag on society. He was a blessing to society, wasn't he? You read the stories about what he did? He wasn't lacking. He was whole. He didn't live out God's plan B for his life. He lived out God's plan A, the Father's plan A for his life. You see, we have adopted a destructive and anti-God worldview often, many of us, when it comes to singleness. But Christianity, you guys, it's, it's, it's really different. It says that not only is singleness a viable way of life, it's a gift. Jesus said in Matthew 19, it is for those, it's a good gift for those to whom it has been given. So I'm just curious why, why we don't see singleness as a gift. Why we don't see singleness as a gift. Why does it feel like greed? Well, it's because we define singleness in negative terms. We, we, we see it for what it lacks, not what it is. And that's most of our perception about it, if we're being honest. And I think that's why this chapter stands in such stark contrast, because here, singleness is not defined or described for what it lacks, but all the benefits that it has. Right? And when you define something for what it has versus what it lacks, your perception of that thing begins to change dramatically. It's like you don't walk up to... A gymnast, sorry, Jamie, we love you, okay, but I, I should have said something ahead of time, but I'm just going to say this, okay? We don't walk up to a gymnast and say, man, you're just, you're so short, right? You can't dunk, you know? We don't do that. We don't walk up to people and do that. No, I look at Jamie, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You can do that. Like, all the stuff you guys can do on the floor routine or the bounce, all this stuff, right? It's amazing. Like, or marry all these people. You can go watch them, and you're blown away by what they can do, right? I don't go up to my kids and say, you can't pay bills, you can't drive cars, you can't go on dates, right? I don't just sit there and tell them what they can't do and what they lack. I'm like, man, that's amazing. You, you're just free, right? You can play, have so much fun. You have no cares or worries in the world. You get to eat food. And it doesn't just like go to your hips, right? All this amazing stuff, right? We don't, I mean, I'm being ridiculous. But we don't go up to a chair, for example, and say, you're not a bed, right? We don't say, like, uh, you know, we're not like, we're like, yeah, beds aren't everything. Chairs are great. We need chairs. We don't go up to trees and say, wow, you're not beautiful, soft grass. Can you believe that? No, we say, you are majestic and beautiful, right? I could go on and on. It'd be really stupid and ridiculous, I know, but I'm trying to, trying to make a point. We look at everything in life and we go, wow, look at this for what it is. Look at what it has. Look for what it contributes. It's beautiful. It's amazing. With singleness, we go, we look at it and we go, what does it not have? And as long as we do that, it, it doesn't ever seem like a gift. It seems like grief. And so in the same way, a single person should be defined by what they have, not what they lack. It's not the absence, but the presence of certain joys that makes singleness so great. Well, what are those things? What's the advantage? We see it in verse 28, right? Verse 28, what does he say? Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. I will spare you that. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Right, these are the things that he's focusing on. What are some of these things that define singleness as a gift or that causes Paul in verse 37 to say, if you stay single, you will do well? Or in verse 38, you will do even better if you're single. Or verse 40, that you will be happier if you remain single. What is it that causes you to do that? Well, he says two things, that you'll be free, and the list could actually be longer, but our passage gives you two reasons. One, devotion to the Lord, and two, anxieties that you'll be free from. So the first thing is anxieties you'll be free from. We saw this in verse 28 and 32 that I just read. See here we see single people are spared the troubles of marriage, right? There, there are many great blessings in marriage, but there's difficulties too. And understandably, I think, well, it's not healthy or helpful, I don't think. Christian couples don't often talk openly about the hard things that they face, especially with single people. And so you can then give out this rose-tinted view of marriage. But there's a downside even when a married couple's relationship is good. That's what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, hey, the marriages are terrible, they're bad. He's like, even when marriages are good, there is a downside. Life is more complicated, that's what he says. There's more than one person to consider in decisions about how you use your time or your accommodation or your holidays or even your daily menu at home, right? And there's, there's more than one person to worry about. I mean, children bring great pleasures to our lives, but man, a lot of anxiety as well. A lot of days you're like, I'm going to go insane, right? Uh, a lot of frustrations. Marriage does bring many troubles in this life. It does. 
What's his point? The point is not necessarily don't get married. He's, he's all about marriage too. His point is the grass isn't always greener on the other side. See, um, just be honest with you. Liz and I, we love our kids, love our family, um, adore them, right? I mean, this is, I, we feel really blessed, okay? But just being real, there's many days where we look at each other and we're like, man, do you remember what it was like? You know, we didn't have kids. Uh, we don't say this to each other, but I'm sure at moments we're like, yeah, you, you remember what it's like when you're single? I mean, you just, I, I don't feel that way, Liz, but I'm sure you think this all the time. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> I should have wrote this part down, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, we, we, you think about that as a married couple. You're, you, it's not saying you're trying to get out of something. You're just saying you, you know the anxieties that come with marriage, with having kids. There's a freedom that there is in being single. And when you are married, there's just more anxieties and, and complications that can technically come with that. There's responsibility, there's an anxiety over the fortune, the well-being of your family. Um, so just an advantage of the single life is if you're free from these anxieties and responsibilities that marriage and family bring with it, you might feel an anxiety right now with being single. You might feel that way. And that anxiety is real, for sure. But marriage isn't your solution to your anxiety. And I, and I hope you all see that. Many of you think it's going to be the solution to your problems. It's just not. It just, it just comes with a whole new set of ones. And not only new ones, Paul's saying it comes with a whole lot more. Uh, secondly, though, uh, Paul says, I want to spare you this, and he mentions these troubles that I just said, chiefly because of the bearing they have on the next point, that you can, be, you can have this devotion to Jesus that is different and unique than a married couple. Uh, he says this in verse 32 to 36. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And the end of verse 35 says, I say this for your own benefit, look at that last phrase, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord, to the Lord. Single people can devote themselves more fully to God's work, he's saying. So a vital part of the Christian responsibility of married persons is to care for their spouse and children. That takes time, right? Time that cannot be therefore spent on hanging out with maybe people who don't know Jesus. You can't just hang out with people any hour of the day or any odd time at night. You know, if someone wants me to do something, I don't just get to say, sure, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go there for three weeks or yeah, I'll come over at that point or I'll do that for you. No, I go, yeah, I'm going to talk to Liz first. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it just adds a complexity to life. And so you're more free to follow Jesus in radical service, whether it's here in Corvallis or whether it's overseas to a people group that has never heard the name of Jesus. You're more free to engage in fighting human trafficking or helping orphans or other widows. You're more free to serve within your local church or lead out in discipling other people or sharing the gospel and just surrounding yourself with non-believers consistently. Single people, he's saying, have more time to give to these types of things. Um, Amy Carmichael uh, was probably the most famous single woman missionary to ever leave the shores of England in the modern missionary period. And she, like many of her female colleagues, struggled with her singleness. Uh, but during her early missionary service to Japan, she came to terms with that struggle, and this is what she related. I'm, it'll be on the screen. It's a really powerful quote, I think. On this day, many years ago, I went away alone to a cave in the mountain called Arima. I had feelings of fear about the future. That was why I went there, to be alone with God. The devil kept on whispering, it's all right now, but what about afterwards? You're going to be very lonely. And he painted pictures of loneliness. I can see them still. And I turned to my God in a kind of desperation and said, Lord, what can I do? How can I go to the end in her singleness? And he, says, she, he said to her, Psalm 34, None of them that trust in me shall be desolate. That word has been with me ever since. See, uh, this woman, this amazing woman, Amy Carmichael, go read her biography, okay? Uh, she became deeply involved in children's work, specifically with rescuing children, uh, girls specifically, from temple prostitution in India. And so she established this home uh, for these kids. It became known as the Dawn of Her Fellowship. And um, she saw the impact this was making and kept inviting single people into her life. 
to be a part of this. And she actually made this, this vow, I guess, that you only could be a part of it if you were single. And if you, if you ran up someone who got married, that was blessed, but you were not allowed to be a part of it anymore. And so they were, they were forced to leave if they were to marry. And so this concept really worked. And by 1952, the family that she had of women that were caring for these children that were being uh, trafficked in temples, numbered 900 women. Women who probably had the same sorts of emotions and feelings they had about their singleness, yet they had this intimate fellowship with one another and this incredible cause for Christ that they couldn't have had otherwise. See, in singleness, there's a freedom to pursuing Christ that's different than being married. You see, there are some who consciously choose to stay single, to devote themselves to Jesus. Some people choose to do that. That may be you. And, but most single people probably haven't chosen singleness in that way. But yet, I want you to see this morning, you have the same advantages even if you haven't chosen it. You have the same opportunities as the person who has chosen it. And so instead of focusing on the difficulties of being single, as some people do, we should take the most advantages that we can and, and, and point to one another the advantages and the gift of being single. You're not lacking. There's so much good here. Let me just say, why should you think this way? And really, why do Christians think this way? Or should Christians think this way? We see this in verses uh, 29 through 31. Okay? What does he say? Are you bound to a wife? Sorry, 27. Do, you seek, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Uh, these verses maybe feel hard to understand. It, it kind of, honestly, as I read it, you know, he's like, if you're, you know, rejoicing as if you're not rejoicing, well, all this stuff. It kind of just feels like Paul's having a bad day, right? Uh, I mean, isn't this the same guy that wrote Ephesians chapter 5 and painted this beautiful picture of marriage and how it's a symbol of Christ and his church, you know? Isn't that the same guy? Well, Paul isn't having a bad day. I guess I don't know that, but um, I, I have no way of knowing that. That's not what his point is, though. When you read the statement in context, we see why he's saying what he's saying. And what he's saying is giving you a Christian worldview, or it's giving you gospel glasses to see the world through. What does it say in verse 29? The appointed time has grown very short. Well, what's the appointed time? It's the moment when, when all true believers, that, that all true believers are anxious for, for Jesus to return to see Jesus face to face, to make all things new. It says the time we have in the here and now is very short, and that should change the way that we live in our present moment. And so Christians for centuries, they, they've called this what we're now living in right now, what you're living in, the overlapping of the ages. It's the time when Jesus first came in his first advent, and he came uh, in, in humility and weakness, and, but also we're in this time where we're waiting for his second coming, when he will return again with authority and, and kingship and power, right? And, that, and then when he's going to make all things new, right? That's the, that's the time that we're in. It's in the overlapping of these ages. This new heaven is breaking in now. The sun is dawning upon the darkness. We celebrate this at Advent. But we acutely understand that things aren't the way that, that they should be. And we feel that. You felt that this week. I'm certain of it. So now in the meantime, Paul is saying, we do not marry, we do not get jobs, we do not work, we do not mourn, we don't grieve, uh, we, we do accumulate wealth, right? Sorry, we do do all these things. We marry, we get jobs, we work, we mourn, grieve, we accumulate wealth, but we do so, we do so in light of the future, in light of the future. Why? Because in the future, we will experience ultimate wealth. And if you know that, it'll cause your current wealth or your lack of wealth to seem really insignificant in the grand scheme of life. Right? In the future, you will experience the ultimate wedding. 
the, the wedding with Jesus is what the Bible talks about. So no Christian is single forever, and human marriages are meant to reflect that marriage that, that Jesus will enjoy with his people forever. So Jesus is told, again, that he is a, a bridegroom that will one day return to take his bride to be with him in this perfect creation. And on that day, all pain will disappear, including the pain of your marriage, if it's a painful marriage, or he will remove the pain from your singleness, if you feel pain in your singleness. It says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and a great shout will be heard. And this is what it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So, so you see your current marriage or your lack of marriage is not a penultimate thing. That's what he's saying. But, but as a foreshadowing of the ultimate marriage. So if you aren't married, you don't live hopelessly now because you know that your marriage is coming. Paul is saying this age is short and eternity is really long. Like if I could draw a huge line around this entire room on the wall, and I said that line represents eternity, and I just walked up to the line, I had a little pencil, and I ticked a dot on that line, we would say that is like the perception of what life really is in the grand scope of eternity. He's like, do you see what's happening here? Do you see what you're moving towards? So he's saying eternity is long, and so the present form of this world is passing away. A new world will ultimately be created, so nothing now is ultimate. So if you don't have a family, don't be too upset about it. If you do have a family, don't be too elated about it. So do you see what 1 Corinthians 7 is saying? This is the basis for viewing your singleness as a gift and not as ultimately this grief. And this is the basis for not making an idol out of your family or your marriage, which most families do nowadays. We think the family is everything. So how does that change? Well, think of it this way, um, or this is how this works. Uh, currently, many of you are like renting a home, right, or an apartment, and uh, many of you maybe like own a home. Maybe some of you do. Uh, maybe you probably want to own a home someday or something. Uh, but the home that you have, the apartment that you're renting, the house you're in or something, it, it's probably not your dream home. Maybe it is. That's awesome. Kudos to you, right? But it's probably not your dream home. But what? It's home, isn't it? It's home. So let me just ask you this. How would you function differently in your current situation? How would you function differently in your current situation if you were promised that you would be gifted your dream home someday? What, whatever that is, okay? Maybe for you that's a tiny house, right? And you're like, someday I'm getting that thing, Right? Or maybe it's the multi-million dollar mansion, you know, Street of Dreams type stuff up in Portland. You walk around those things and you're like, I'll never buy this, but whatever, right? You're like, what if someone said, whatever your dream is, you will have that someday, guaranteed, right? I'll even, I'll sign the papers, all that kind of stuff. If you knew that was coming to you someday, what would that do to your current place of residence? What would that do to you? Well, I think this is what it would do to you. If you loved and idolized your current home or your place of living, all of a sudden, that wouldn't be your idol anymore, would it? Like, if you thought what you had was just amazing, and you just protected it, and one day you're like, I'm going to have that thing. That's my dream. This wouldn't seem so significant anymore, would it? Right? It would begin to pale in comparison to what you knew was coming. Or, if you disliked your current situation, and you knew that was coming, it would infuse hope within you, because you knew that your current situation was temporary, and your dream was actually coming. That's exactly what Paul's doing here in giving you this vision. It crushes your idol, family, but it also tells you this hope that you have, whether you're married or single, right? So, so you know this is exactly what Paul's doing. So he's saying that the shortness of this overlapping age, the promise of the ultimate wedding, the family that we have with Christ forever, this worldview, he's saying it equalizes single life and married life. Both lives, marriage and singleness, are equally valid and viable, that's what it's saying. So I just want to ask you, has Jesus, has the gospel, has it begun to shape your worldview of family and marriage and singleness? Or are you letting it do that? See, Jesus, Paul, John Stott, Sam Alberry, Bethany Jenkins, Amy Carmichael, thousands of other incredible Christians throughout the centuries have lived joyful and fulfilled single lives. Is this, is, have you let Jesus shape this worldview that you have or should have? 
If, if you have it and you still view singleness or you, or, or you give in to the idea that this is it, this is all I have, it's temporary, if that's what we're living for, then if we've done that, then we haven't encountered Jesus on a worldview level, level yet. We just haven't done it. Uh, you know, in the, in the Garden of Eden, uh, the first temptation by the serpent, he challenged uh, the worldview that God gave to Adam and Eve. That's what he did. He said this question. He said, uh, who told you that you can't eat of this tree? That's what he said in the garden. Uh, do you see what the serpent was saying essentially when he said that? He says, if you obey God, you won't be happy and you're going to miss out. He's holding out on you. But, but what happened, not only when Adam and Eve uh, realized God wasn't holding out on them, is they experienced how God wired them a specific way to experience life and joy and fulfillment. They, they bought into the lie and they experienced that in following the lie, they weren't given the joy and the fulfillment that they were looking for. They actually lacked joy. You see, from the very beginning of time, people have doubted this. So we see, even Adam and Eve saw this, that we were built by God, for God. Our joy sensors are created for him. He's not holding out on you. Whatever it is that you think is going to give you more joy or more fulfillment or more peace or purpose, other than God, is just a lie. There are married people in here who could testify to the heartache and the headaches where you've put just way too much pressure on your spouse to fulfill you. And you realize that they were never created to be the one to make you whole, to fulfill you. That, that, that's God's job. So in marriage, though, if you look to your spouse for that, you'll think, you better fulfill me. And you right now might be thinking, that'll fix all your problems. But the moment you look to your spouse and say, you better fulfill me, and they don't fulfill you, you're just going to blow up at them. Well, then you'll hear another spouse say, if my marriage was better, I'd be happier. And some people are saying that right now. And that's just not true at all. Guys, no, that, that, that's not the answer. Only the future will fix you. And the future is coming. We see this perfectly in the life of Jesus. He lived with the end invading his present. You see, singleness is a gift. It's a viable plan A for life. It has wonderful advantages. And the reason this is the case is because we were made for another world. And that world is coming and so we must not put our hope in this one. So based upon these truths from 1 Corinthians 7, if we really believe them, if we hold on to them, how should we live as a faith family? I just have four quick things that I want to practically give us as a road forward. Uh, number one, okay, number one, uh, do not think of singleness as second best. Do not think of singleness as second best. This goes out for families and single people. If you are single and you're here this morning, which there's some of you, uh, you are not less than. Right? You are not lacking. You aren't waiting to be made whole by somebody else. I'm serious. Jesus makes you whole. And if you think that another person is going to make you whole, then you're going to be really disappointed. And you will crush them with your expectations. But also, if you're married or you have a family, um, we, we must never look at somebody who is single as if they are less than. You shouldn't look at a single person with pity, especially if they don't feel pity for themselves. Right? They're not less than you. Uh, you haven't arrived, and they're just trying to get to where you're at. So quite honestly, you should avoid singles, or not singles, sorry, that was the exact opposite. Um, <laughs> You should avoid sentences, questions, like, you still single, right? Even jokes, right? Uh, you found anybody yet? That just, you're just communicating to somebody that they're lacking something, and they're not, right? But number two, uh, learn from single people. We need to learn from single people. Be instructed and encouraged by their zeal and passion for God, by their, by their freedom, when you, when you see them, just tell them all the wonderful things about their life and the advantages of being single. Tell them about it. Be honest with them about it. Don't feel like you're saying your marriage is terrible or you hate parenting or any of that stuff. Just tell them how great it is that them being single. Tell them about it. Tell them what you learn from them and how they contribute to your life. Ask them to give you their perspective on your marriage or your parenting. And don't just take it with a grain of salt, right, because they don't have kids or they aren't married. 
think we have this really unhealthy view that we can only learn from people who have experienced something. That's just not true, right? Single people have many life and relationship experiences, plus, more than anything, they have the Holy Spirit if they're followers of Jesus, and they may see things and notice things that you as a sleepy-eyed parent just can't notice. Number three, if you're single, uh, date to the glory of God. Date to the glory of God if you want to or if you can, uh, meaning date. Uh, first and foremost, uh, treat every person that you would date as a brother or sister in Christ. So when you are dating, uh, see how damaging and dangerous it is to play like faux marriage with somebody. Because you're not married, you're still single. Um, and quite honestly, it'd be really wise for many of us, or you, I guess, but many of, many of you to lower your standards. Uh, I, I only say this because for many people, I think generally women are lumped in this category, but some men as well, They've created a list of what a perfect husband or wife is like. And, and we really need to open our hands to whatever fictitious person we're dreaming of because the only perfect spouse is Jesus and maybe the person that you've written on a list is really somebody you've just gotten from a movie or something. I'm not saying that you should just pretend to love people or be like, well, I'll settle for this. It's not what all what I'm saying. But it would be wise to assess your list in the presence of God through prayer and see if what you're dreaming about someone God just isn't bringing into your life because you could be missing out, quite honestly, on an amazing lifelong marriage with somebody uh, headed towards your great wedding day with Jesus because you've dreamt up your perfect spouse by using romantic comedies or other voices that have shaped you in whatever you're after. And that's just not true marriage. That's idolatry. So you might simply be after self-fulfillment, which isn't God's vision for marriage. And even if you got the ideal person, you'd get into that marriage and you'd find that they're not enough to fulfill you. So date to the glory of God with this big picture of heading towards his wedding day. But number four, number four, remember that your family, whether you have a family biologically of your own or whether you're single, remember that your family is the church. Your family is the church. Um, I think married people and families can often look to single people and say, well, they have more time than I do. So ministry-wise, I'll have them do this because my hands are full. Uh, a true, we, we just saw that single people are more freed up to follow Jesus. Nonetheless, their time with their friends, their closest community is just as important as your time is with your kids. Right? They, they, need, they need community and a sense of family just as much as we do. If you're married or if you have kids or something like that. And so as Christians, our lives, you guys, this is, this is the practical step forward And how do we do this? How do we function like a family? Not just say church is a family, but be a family. We do this by opening up our home to, your fam to, other, to other singles, to your family. Or if you're a single person, opening up your home to families. You might not think that a family wants to come over to your apartment. Maybe they do. Maybe they'd love that. See, as Christians, our lives have experienced the truth that we were once orphans. Guys, that we were outsiders. We weren't in God's family, but through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we've experienced the ultimate hospitality in Jesus. But we, he welcomed us home to be with God forever. He gave us the key to his house. That's what he did. Come to me anytime, no matter how you're feeling. If you're weary, if you're, if you're beat down, whatever it is, come to Jesus, right? We, we practice hospitality then. We seek to make strangers family. In the family of God, that's what we do. We practice hospitality with our possessions, our spaces, our hearts, because we have experienced the greatest hospitality in Jesus, and we see that he's made us family. I think we need to believe deeply uh, what Rosaria Butterfield said in her latest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which if you haven't read it, I, it's probably one of the best books I've read in a long time. She says, the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. And many of us think that our biological blood is way more significant than the blood of Christ that unites us all. And it's completely backwards. If we do, if we believe that, we will function in such a beautiful way as a church. As we will open our homes, not out of just charity because we feel like we have to, we'll do that because we love people. During holidays, we'll invite single people into our home to, to love them as your own or as as Christians, we'll, we'll be hospitable because Christ has been hospitable to us. But the kind of hospitality the Bible talks about is not with the idea of putting on a show. 
We, we don't need to have everything perfect before you let somebody in your home. We, we value the person over the presentation. And so your home life doesn't have to be Instagrammable in order to be hospitable. And if it does, then we aren't probably loving people as much as we are concerned about what they think about us, which isn't love. I mean, I think of countless people in my life, uh, my pastor in the Bay Area, Jonathan and Maggie, and the way they open up their home just for people to come and go. Countless people in this church, from Kayla and Andy Crow, uh, who just house people or welcome them in all the time, or Matt and Jackie Munger, or Jeremy and Brooke Cook, right? We, we have these vi- pictures of people who practice this hospitality, and they would probably say to you, they have steps to take. Um, I, I am even struck by um, a, a single guy, he's, he's an incredible author, his name is Sam Alberry, and uh, he's actually coming out with a book here this month called Seven Myths of Singleness. I'm really anticipating this book coming out, uh, so you might want to pick it up. But he is really close friends with Tim and Kathy Keller in New York City. Um, Tim, Tim's a pastor, or was a pastor over there, has written a lot of books, and they literally years ago just gave him a house key. And he, this, this guy, Sam, lives in London. He's like, whenever you're in New York, even if we're here, even if we're not, you just show up. Don't even have to tell us you're coming. Just come. Our family is your family. And Sam Alberry uh, gets to experience Tim and Kathy, not just as, as practical family. He, he knows that he's welcome at any time because he has that house key. Guys, it's my dream that anyone who is single in our church family would have at least one family unit where they feel at home. Why? We, we, we have to do better. We do. Because we're gospel people. And the way that we've been brought in the family of God makes us different people. We have to do better because God has a whole vision for the single life. And honestly, if we miss out on that, we really hurt people. We tell them by our actions, by not pursuing them as family, that they're less than and that we're okay and you have to get to where I am in order to be okay too. It's just not true. We can cause people to believe lives that they aren't whole or they can't experience intimacy or that they're lacking. And in our day and age, with the cultural movement towards affirming homosexuality and gender fluidity, this doctrine of singleness, it's the most important uh, vision that we must get or else, quite honestly, we have no real future to hold out to people who are same-sex attracted. Many people, I'm, I'm certain in this room, We must not only say that church is a family, but act like church is a family. But in order to do that, it it takes sacrifice, a joyful sacrifice when we live with this eternal perspective and we stop idolizing biological families over the family of God. Let me just say this. I I know many of you who are single, uh, you struggle with deep pain and even fear of loneliness. And as a faith community, we need to recognize that. And we need to recognize this, but not only recognize it, we need to confess that. We need to be a safe place for people to confess that. Uh, we, we want, if, if you're somebody who says, I'm same-sex attracted, we want to be a place for you uh, to be open to say that and to say, yeah, I want to be faithful to Jesus. Help me do that. This is where I'm at. Um, I need to confess that, but, but not only hear that and receive that and be a safe place for people to do that, but we need to come alongside one another as family, not as charity, but out of love and recognition that we are the family of God in Christ. Uh, Wesley Hill, who is same-sex attracted Christian, he writes on his singleness and celibacy in his memoir, Washed and Waiting. I'd really recommend it to you. He vulnerably writes in a journal entry in this memoir. It'll be on the screen. I'm going to wrap it up here. Many times I am seized with terrible doubts and fears, mostly about my friend's love for me, whether it is solid or not. I sometimes feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride from joy to turmoil. It seems that hardly a week goes by with at least, without at least one night of black despair. I have a very deep need for love and intimate communion and deep knowing of another person and exposing my heart and soul that no relationship can seem to satisfy. You see, the pain is real if you're single. It's not minimizing that by saying there's advantages or it's a gift. It's not minimizing the pain. But it doesn't mean that it's not a gift. It doesn't mean that there aren't advantages. Why? Because we are not alone. We, we are never alone because Jesus has ensured that you will never be alone. 
He's ensured that. And we experienced the, he experienced the ultimate isolation on the cross. He was placed outside the city. He, he hung there in ultimate vulnerability and loneliness. And, and for part of the reason is in order to ensure that by placing your faith in him that you would never be alone, that you'd be restored to God in the, for the relationship that you were meant for, for the intimacy that you were designed for. You are assured of his presence. He said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And this is our experience as believers. We've been invited now into this family. And so it's my prayer as a church that we would be that family. That all of us would say, what's a step I could take today towards, towards being a member of that family? Let's all stand to our feet as we go into this time of response to God's word. Lord Jesus, uh, we, Lord, I just confess to you, God, how often convicted I am about um, things that I'm after that I think that I need that are good things, but they're not things I really need. God, I'm deceived to think that I need other things more than you, and I pray, God, that we would, would clearly understand, God, that we need you and that we have you because of what you went through, Lord Jesus, on the cross and through the empty grave. And Lord, I pray that as a church, uh, we would see more clearly than ever that we are a family, that we are a part of a family together, and that we would desire to grow in acting like a family, in being there for one another, and practicing hospitality. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would desire that. But God, I know that has to come from you. And so Lord, I pray that you would do that in our lives, that you would do only what you can do. Lord Jesus, would you be um, our hope? Would, would the future of you, your return just be something, Lord, that, that we put our, our ultimate hope in? Lord, I pray for those who might be hurting this morning um, because of their singleness, and I pray, Lord, that you just bring them great comfort, and that you would surround them with people who love them, that they could experience vulnerable, intimate relationship with, that would love them well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.